Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. High unemployment seems to persist for military spouses. Now agencies have instructions from the White House to improve federal recruitment for that group. A new strategic plan just out from the Office of Personnel Management and the Office of Management and Budget aims to help agencies reach that goal. Here with details, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And why all of a sudden the focus on something that's been going on really for decades, Drew? Right. This is something that the Biden administration, they had an executive order in 2023 to try to improve recruitment and retention in the government of military spouses. It has been a problem for a long time, as you said, but I think it's something that is getting a little bit more attention both from the executive branch as well as in Congress. Currently, there are about 16,000 federal employees who are the spouses of military members or veterans. But at the same time, as you mentioned, there is a really high unemployment rate for that group. It's about 21 percent compared with an overall unemployment rate of just about three or four percent. So that's really significant. Also, 92 percent of military spouses are women. So it is a really difficult group that they're trying to boost recruitment for. It's often also a reason that military families will consider leaving the service if their spouse is not able to get a job or keep a job. So I think that's that's an issue there as well. Yes, because some military service members are at the edge of poverty, almost as it is with military pay. And if the spouse can't work, then that makes it worse. So what are some of the main goals of the strategic plan? So this new strategic plan is the first of its kind, and it's a way that OMB and OPM are trying to help agencies specifically look at ways to improve recruitment. So some of the ideas that they have in there, they are looking to review their current recruitment policies, see where there might be barriers, and then try to fix those barriers to employment for that group. Really good example Remote work opportunities are really beneficial to military spouses. If you have your spouse as an active duty military member, they might have to move around a lot. So having that remote work opportunity uh, or those types of jobs are really significant. So that's one example in the strategic plan where they said, you know, try to emphasize those roles as much as possible and connect more with military spouses. That's just one example, but there's a ton of ways that they're trying to uh, look at ways to improve that recruitment. I guess they can reach out to employers, too. They can't force them to have people allowed to telework, but if they have an employee who's a military spouse, then maybe they can help, too. But getting back to the government side, this plan mentioned something called DITO, the Domestic Employees Teleworking Overseas Program. And you and I have talked about that one before. What are agencies being asked to do under DITO? Well, I'll tell you first, Tom, that the DITO program is... DITO, sorry. (laughs) It's a program that's meant to offer remote jobs to spouses of military members or other federal employees who are stationed overseas. So right now, the program has just a couple hundred participants, and it's mainly for State Department employees and those in the Defense Department. But part of this strategic plan is to try to broaden the scope of that uh, DETO program and look at, you know, are, are there other agencies where you can bring in those opportunities and try to extend them to military spouses as well? Uh, the Social Security Administration mentioned they're looking at potentially standing up a DETO program. We haven't seen any you know, clear signs of the progress there, but other agencies are being now encouraged to adopt a similar program. 
Right, because there are places that offer jobs around the world in the same way the military does, like the State Department. Whether you know HUD could have a deto job or something, that's something I guess will remain to be seen. Any agencies that are models here for having success in, in military spouse hiring? The Department of Health and Human Services is one that has seen a lot of improvement just in recent months. In the last year, they increased their hiring of military spouses by 36%. So just in one year, that's how much they went up, which is quite significant. Um, The chief human capital officer, Bob Levitt, at HHS said that's due to just emphasizing, again, the remote work opportunities and trying to connect directly with military spouses by hosting uh, career fairs and other events and sessions targeted toward that group. He said they're looking to beef that up even more over the next year and and try to expand it further. Do we have any numbers on that? Because 36% could go from like five people to eight. That's 36%, or was it hundreds maybe? I don't have any specific numbers, but I would say with such a large staff at HHS, it could be, it's probably more than just a handful. And what about the administration elsewhere or Congress? This is something they've been talking about. I remember Michelle Obama had an initiative. She was concentrating on state licensing situations where if you had a license to do something, some kind of an occupation in one state, was there a way you could get states to honor that license when the spouse moved to another state without a whole bunch of rigmarole and expense and cost of getting relicensed? Right. Yeah. There there is a continued focus on recruitment of military spouses into the federal workforce. For example, just a few months ago, the Office of Personnel Management extended the direct hiring authority that agencies can use to appoint military spouses to positions and forgo some of the traditional hiring procedures. There's also some bills in Congress, for example, one called the Readiness Act that's looking to improve the recruitment and retention of military spouses. And in the strategic plan as well, OPM and OMB mention that they're looking at potentially pursuing a legislative proposal. And I think that would just kind of bolster these similar uh, goals that the administration has right now for that. But will they be also reaching out to states and try to work on that particular issue? It wasn't mentioned in the strategic plan, as far as I know, but I'm sure it's one avenue that they'd be looking at as well. And did the strategic plan have metrics? You mentioned like HHS could say we have a 36% increase in the number of hires. A good strategic plan should have a metric that they're going to measure against. Right. They did talk about, you know, how to measure and how to use data to look at how much are they are these plans and these strategies really going to improve the hiring of military spouses. Uh, One example that I can give is that in the strategic plan, OPM mentioned that they're going to add some questions to the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey or FEVS to ask military spouses uh, and others working government about some of the strategies that they're looking at here. Yeah, so it's good for the spouses and it's good for retention of the military, they hope. I think that's the goal. It's a two-pronged approach there. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. 
Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance and I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. 
what's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. 
and even your title, Chief People Officer. What does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful so it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going. Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules, can we make it a menu, can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role. So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things 
through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.